to another brand new episode of T Watches a Scary Movie. My name is T, and of course, we're talking scary movies. I appreciate you tuning in for another brand new episode. Remember, new episodes go up every Wednesday night at 8.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time for the video version that you're watching on YouTube. That's at youtube.com slash C slash Theron Reynolds Scary Movie. Again, youtube.com slash C slash Theron Reynolds Scary Movie. And you can watch the audio version 30 minutes earlier on your favorite podcasting platforms. Make sure you're subscribing to this channel so you can be aware of other videos that are going up. Because like I say, while I do my episodes every Wednesday night, I do also put up other reviews throughout the week as well too and there is so much there is so so much out there right now that i have to talk about whether it's uh interview with the vampire whether it's chucky whether it's killer camp whether it's the conclave of movies that we've had coming out and still more to come as well uh y'all definitely got to get subscribed to the youtube channel to make sure you're getting alerted of all the reviews that are coming out because i got a lot of great stuff coming up we got Deadstream coming we got my best friend's exorcism coming we have uh, 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 Halloween Ends coming up, obviously. We have Barbarian coming. We have so much great stuff coming up here. And I want to make sure y'all can check that out when it comes up. So make sure you're getting subscribed to the video version. And with that, we're going to dive right on in, folks, because I got a lot to talk about tonight. Tonight, I'm going to be reviewing episode two of Interview with the Vampire. As well, we are going to be looking at uh, Brian Fuller's attempt at bringing the Munsters back uh, just about 10 years ago, actually, in Mockingbird Lane. We just got done talking the Munsters not too long ago, and I mentioned we'd be coming around to this, so we're going to be talking Mockingbird Lane as well, too. But I got a couple of other topics. I want to talk about before we get to the monsters and before we get to vampires so uh we know that halloween ends is coming out this week i am actually going to uh one of the final early screenings of this tonight i'm gonna have that review up early for y'all because i definitely 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 uh have to make sure we're talking about this folks i uh, have not missed a halloween movie in theaters since halloween resurrection which hey i can always say and no matter what you feel about halloween resurrection i got a chance to see one of the movies that was in the original timeline and since then i've seen every halloween entry that's coming up and it's kind of crazy to think that i have now seen uh six Halloween films after Halloween ends in theaters. But it brought up something that I really wanted to think about because we're all speculating about where this Halloween film can honestly go. And something that I was interested in here is the idea of whether or not we actually think that Laurie Strode or Michael Myers is gonna die in this film. And it's worth bringing up because Laurie Strode has been killed in this series actually a number of times. If you recall, Laurie Strode has actually been killed a couple of times here in the series. Uh, when Halloween 4 came around and Jamie Lee Curtis didn't return to that one, instead Daniel Harris uh, took over the reins as our lead character Jamie Lloyd, and it was revealed that Jamie Lloyd was actually the daughter of Laurie Strode, who apparently had been killed in a car accident. That was one. Then we got Halloween Resurrection, and in Halloween Resurrection, which, uh, which continued on from Halloween H2O, what had happened was, was that they ignored the events of Halloween 4, 5, and 6 and decided just to continue on from Halloweens 1 and 2. 3 is not in the continuity, so it doesn't really matter that much. Love 3, Season of the Witch for the win. But uh, they decided they were going to continue on from the original story. And in Halloween Resurrection, Laurie Strode was killed at the beginning of the film. So Laurie's been killed a couple times in this series already. 
And with us continuing now from the original Halloween, because now our new timeline is the first Halloween film, Halloween 2018, Halloween Kills, and now Halloween Ends, uh, there's a good chance that Laurie could die in this one as well, too. And it brought up something interesting that I'm sure some of you have considered, but I want to talk about here just for a moment. So are these movies still as interesting if Michael Myers can't die? If we think about it in the past, in Halloween 1, Loomis shot Michael. Michael was gone at that point. Okay, that was it. Michael was gone. Halloween 2, Michael gets blown up and he's presumably dead. But then we find out when we get to Halloween 4, when they continued the series, that, well, he got burnt up. He got scarred a lot, but Michael wasn't dead. And he escapes the uh, mental institution and we're back hitting the ground running again. Halloween 4, Michael got shot up a bunch and then got brought back by this hermit who he proceeded to kill. Uh, Halloween 5 didn't end with his death. It ended, up, ended with him actually getting arrested. And then, uh, you know, the cold of thorn came in. Uh, Halloween 6 did not end with Michael's death either. Halloween H2O ended with Michael presumably being beheaded. But we then later find out, and that was canon at the time, that Michael traded places with the paramedic. And instead, uh, the paramedic was beheaded instead. And Mike and in uh, Resurrection, Michael Myers was presumably killed at the end of that. Though there is an alternate ending where Michael came back in that one as well, just so they could do another film. We didn't follow up on that, obviously. Now, the Rob Zombie films, same thing. Michael gets shot in the face at the end of the original Halloween, but Michael again was not dead, and they brought him back. And then the same thing happened in Halloween too. Michael gets shot the fuck up. And we assume he's dead, but obviously Rob Zombie never got to make a third film, so we don't know. If we think about our new continuity, at the end of Halloween 2018, they leave him in the burning house. He gets burnt up a little bit, but not enough, and obviously he survives through it. And the storyline that we're left off here with Halloween ends, excuse me, Halloween kills, is that obviously Michael didn't die in that film. He killed Laurie Strode's daughter, and we're going to be flash-forwarding a few years to see what's going on now. And I wonder, is the Halloween series as interesting and is Laurie Strode as interesting of a character if we know that Michael Myers can't die? Does that take away from the enjoyment of it if we know for a fact that Michael can't be killed and basically no matter what, he's going to kill everybody that's in his path? You know, with Freddy, we know that in all these films, we can defeat Freddy. Even if it's just for that movie, we can defeat Freddy. He's gone and he has to be resurrected. Freddy has to be resurrected to come back and get these kids. Same thing with Jason after part four, because Jason didn't die in two or in three. Uh, he died at the end of the final chapter. And then following the final chapter, he dies and is resurrected at the end of every single movie. So it's kind of like if you don't resurrect Jason, he's dead for good. Same thing with Chucky. Chucky dies in pretty much every entry as well, too. And he's resurrected every time. So the, the thing is, is that with a lot of our favorite horror films, our villains are killed and they're brought back to life. But Michael hasn't had that distinguishment to where Michael has been brought back from the dead. He's been given almost this superhuman quality to him to where he can take all this damage and nothing bad is going to happen with that. And... I'm not sure how I feel about that because the idea there then is that if Michael can't die, that means that Laurie Strode is just, again, she's biding time. And I realize it's not about Laurie. 
this new continuity makes it very clear that Lori's not actually all that important. She's the OG at this point there, but at the end of the day, Michael's not necessarily after her. She just happens to be around, unfortunately, because Michael's been killing everybody. Everybody that, that he encounters, he's basically murdering him. That was one of the best things I thought about Halloween 2018, is that when Michael got back into town, he's just going house to house and murdering whoever the hell he wants to. I think that is a, a hell of a lot of fun to see Michael doing that. Um, I, it, it's fantastic. And same with a bit of Halloween Kills as well, too, is that Michael just keeps going house to house and murdering whoever the hell he wants to. And unfortunately, if you're in his way, you got to suffer from that. So that definitely does like suck for those victims. But the question is, does it suck for the movie? Because does that mean we have to assume that Lori's going to die? Because if you can't defeat Michael, then that would mean that he's going to kill everybody that's there. And if you know that he's going to kill everybody that's there, does that make the series any more interesting? I don't know. I don't know if it does or not, honestly. And I'm worried about it because... It's not that I need Lori to live and Michael to die or Lori to die and Michael to live. I don't know what I would actually prefer, but I'd be comfortable knowing that both of them can actually die. Like, as much as people harp on resurrection, at least we got a firm answer in this case that they were both dead at the end of Halloween Resurrection. Both Lori and Michael Myers are dead. They're done. That's the end of it at that point. And I like having that kind of finality to the series itself. Um, I know we're going to get more Halloween entries, whether it's from Bloomhouse, whether it's from uh, our same director and writer here, whether Jamie Lee Curtis is involved. We know for a fact we're going to get more entries at some point. And that's okay if they decide to start their own story there. Like, let's find a new story to go with. Let's leave Laurie Strode alone. But I'm interested in what y'all think about the fact that if, we, if Michael can't die, does that make him less interesting? Does that make Lori less interesting if Michael can't die? If he does, does that make things a little bit more fun because there's actual stakes? Because I feel like there might not be stakes if we know that Michael can't die. Again, all these other horror villains out there, at least our victims can get a temporary reprieve. It's not like you can do that from Michael, apparently, from what we've seen so far. So let me know in the comments, how do you feel about the idea of Michael being immortal, taking all this damage and nothing's happening? Maybe he'll get beheaded in this one. We don't know, but it poses a very, very interesting topic. The second thing I want to talk about here, Heather Langenkamp of Nightmare on Elm Street fame, who is currently appearing in Mike Flanagan's The Midnight Club on Netflix, recently revealed in an interview that she has an interest in coming back to the Nightmare on Elm Street series one more time, that there's some unfinished business between her and Freddy. Now, that makes sense because unfortunately, with both the Nightmare on Elm Street series and the Friday the 13th series, these guys have been kind of locked up in cold storage for quite a bit of time. We got remakes on both, regardless of your liking of them. We got remakes on both, but we had no sequels. We've had no other reboots. We've had no TV shows. There's been rights issues at Friday the 13th. And with, uh, uh, with Nightmare on Elm Street, somebody just can't seem to work out where to go next with this series for some reason. And Heather Langenkamp, who plays Nancy Thompson from Nightmare 1 and 3, and uh, obviously herself in Wes Craven's New Nightmare, has stated that she wants to come back and do another one to finish off Nancy and Freddy's story once and for all. Now, I think Nancy's cool. I, I think Nancy's a great protagonist. Um, Y'all know me, Dream Warriors is the bar here at this point. But here's the thing. Even if we ignore New Nightmare which we would have to ignore New Nightmare because New Nightmare is about Heather Langenkamp. It's not about Nancy Thompson. 
even if we ignore that, Nancy is dead, okay? Nancy is dead. And Nightmare on Elm Street 3 is genuinely one of, it's the either considered the best or it's considered the second best for most people in the Nightmare on Elm Street series. Okay, maybe third, because people absolutely love Wes Craven's New Nightmare. I think New Nightmare is great as well too. But Nancy is dead in this series. And so for me, it's not that I'm against Heather Camp coming back. It's not that I'm against Nancy coming back, but Freddy still has enemies out there right now. If you remember, part three set up Kristen, who was then played by Patricia Arquette, who survived with her friends that went on to part four, and uh, Kristen was now played by Tuesday Night. And uh, Kristen died and passed on her Dream Master powers over to Alice, played by Lisa Wilcox. Alice made it from part four to part five where she had her kid Jacob with her uh, boyfriend Dan. Dan died. Um, and Jacob was kind of part protagonist, part antagonist as Freddie was using him to come back and terrorize, uh, terrorize Alice and all of her friends. But Alice and Jacob are presumably still alive because we don't count anything that's not on screen as canon. So I guess my question would be, if we're going to bring Nancy back, why can't we put a focus on Alice and Jacob? Like, let Nancy come back for sure. That's fine. But shouldn't we be focusing the story on Alice and if not Alice on Jacob instead? I don't know. It just seems off to me there. Like, I get it. Legacy sequels are the hot, the hot thing. But unlike Halloween, unlike uh, even Friday the 13th, unlike uh, like a lot of other series that are out there, the Nightmare movies are pretty popular. And that trilogy of 3, 4, 5, I know 5 gets a lot of flack, but 3, 4, 5 telling the story of Kristen and Alice, that's a really, really good trilogy. And Nancy is involved in that. This is not like Halloween to where Laurie Strode didn't actually have a direct involvement in Halloween 4, 5, and 6. So my question is, is that if we do a legacy sequel, are we suddenly just cutting these people out? Do they not get featured anymore because of that? Because I don't know if I necessarily enjoy that turn. So I don't know. We'll see. We'll see the way that that goes. We'll see the way it goes here. But tell me in the comments, if you want to see a legacy sequel to Nightmare on Elm Street, should Nancy be the lead character at that point? Should Nancy be featured at all? Do you want to see Alice and Jacob come back? Do you want to see something completely new? Let me know in the comments. I'm curious what y'all think about that. Alrighty, in reviews tonight, I am first talking about Brian Fuller's uh, pilot for a revival of the Munsters TV show entitled Mockingbird Lane. Now, this was uh, developed and written by Brian Fuller, who, if you don't know that name there, uh, Brian Fuller is the guy behind Hannibal the fantastic show on Hannibal Lecter that was on NBC. And of course, this show here was also developed on NBC as well too. And it aired actually almost 10 years to the date. It aired October 26, 2012. And uh, it was set up as a, uh, as a Halloween special. And it was going into an episode of Grimm, which you might remember was like the fairy tale story back in the day with Dave, uh, Dave something from the real world. Um, uh, yeah, I used to watch that show. The show was great. Um, but unfortunately, it did not get picked up by NBC as a series. Now, I wanted to talk about this because we recently talked about Rob Zombie's The Munsters. And I mentioned how, while it wasn't really for me, I did feel that that movie was actually a really, really good um, a really, really good prequel that was made for the original TV series. So, in my opinion, and again, I'm not a I, like I'm not a big fan of the original series. Like, I think it's good, but it's not something that I'm obsessed with or anything. But 
I thought it was a great lead-in to it there, honestly. If you're a big Munsters fan, I thought there was a lot to enjoy about this, about that Munsters movie. But I also did mention in my review that it was interesting that Rob Zombie took, took this approach to make it accurate as humanly possible, set the jokes in that time, continue it from that time, rather than make a spin a spin of like the existing material, approach it differently, put his Rob Zombie like kind of fingers on it. He just made it literally a prequel to the show. Whereas Brian Fuller went the different route. Brian Fuller took the basically the bones of the Munsters and adapted it, number one, to today's audience. But then number two, he also actually wanted to try to take his hand at actually making it uh, a bit on the scary, a bit on the creepier side as well. Which definitely explains why Hannibal was just so, so good as well. Because the man knows what he's working with when it comes to horror. Uh, comes to horror, honestly. He really, really does. And so the way the Munsters differs is it again serves a bit as a prequel and a bit as like kind of like the first season of the show as well. We get brought in at, to where the Munsters are having to move to 1313 Mockingbird Lane after Eddie was involved in a bear attack with his wildlife explorer scout troop. Now, of course, as we see, and in one of the best scenes of this, uh, of this, uh, I don't know, of this pilot. The bear is obviously Eddie, Eddie Munster, as a werewolf attacking his troop. Now, what was kind of fun about this is that not only do I love the design of the werewolf that they use for it here, but Brian Fuller actually seemed smart about how he was going to sneak in, like, this incredible amount of horror and violence into the show. Because that first bit makes it seem like it's very clear that Eddie has murdered basically all of his scoutmates and his uh, scout master, scout leader as well too. But then we see like the end of this scene and they're all still alive at that point there. So he just scratched them up, he bit some of them up, which poses another question, which I'm sure would have been answered down the line. But I thought that was very interesting because the opening of this is fantastic. All these campers are huddled around talking about, you know, a bear possibly like eating all their food and everything. And then suddenly a werewolf shows up and attacks all of them. And of course, it's Eddie Munster. And if you remember in the original series, like Eddie had those werewolf traits to him there, had the ears and the fangs and things like that. But werewolves back then were portrayed in, in a completely different, like a different light. Not to mention, it was a sitcom. Like the Munsters was a sitcom. They're not going for overly bloody or gory or anything like that at all. And this is where we get to meet the rest of Eddie's family. You know, we get to meet Grandpa Munster, uh, played by Eddie Izzard, who is absolutely chewing up the scenes in this story. Like, Eddie looks like he's having so much fun playing Count Dracula. Uh, and again, that is the implication here, is that he absolutely is Count Dracula in this. But... I love the fact that he's just chewing it up there and obviously he is this, uh, not evil, he cares about his family, but he wants his family to really be like these evil beings who embrace who they are. Like sure, we can live in the suburbs, sure we can do these normal things, but at the same time, let's not forget that we're bloodthirsty creatures of the night. That's what our family are and that's what we're going to be and there's no shame at all in doing that. He's also shown to really be the guy that's taking care of a lot of the family as well, too. Which, no disrespect to Jerry O'Connell's Herman Munster. Herman Munster, again, being a Frankenstein monster, a modern-day version of this. You know, we don't know the backstory of whether or not, like, uh, like 
Herman was made to for Lily. Like that's the idea of Herman and you know Rob Zombie's recent adaptation is that uh, like the this doctor, this mad scientist put together all these different body parts and beings together to get famous. And then from there, Herman fell in love with Lily. And in the meantime, Grandpa was trying to design Lily, this uh, this perfect husband. So we don't get the background on that. And that's, I'm sure, something that could have been explored in later in the season had it been picked up. But we see that Herman, while he is the, uh, the patriarch of this family, at the same time, you know, a lot of what he's saying falls on deaf ears because, you know, Two thirds of his family, or I guess over like half of his family that's with him are bloodthirsty creatures. You got two vampires and you got a werewolf and we don't know anything about Marilyn at that point yet too. So I really enjoyed getting to see that Herman is just this like over loving, overbearing dad who just wants the best for his family. But at the same time, you know, he doesn't want the murder and he doesn't want the, uh, the gore and all that unless, you know, keeps him alive. We also have Lily Munster, played by Portia de Rossi, who of course is a vampire as well. But we see that one of the things that Lily, uh, Lily absolutely revels in is her love for her family. She absolutely loves her husband, Herman, and loves what they have between them. And she loves her kids as well too, even if she wanted to eat her kids at one point or another. And I definitely think that Portia de Rossi just has this captivating presence to where when she comes on, it, it's almost like you can feel through the screen her emotions that she has with this family. And that's great because while Grandpa is definitely the more cold of the two with them both being vampires, we can see that Lily is still has more of a human side than Grandpa does because Grandpa definitely wants to act on these impulses and do all these terrible, terrible things where Lily is not necessarily there yet, you know? She still wants to fly under the radar. She wants to keep secrets from Eddie of knowing that he's a werewolf as well, too. She cares about her family, clearly, even if she does have that bloodlust. We also have uh, Marilyn Munster, played by Charity Wakefield, who this is interesting because if you recall from the original series, Marilyn was actually, I believe, Lily's sister in the original show. And obviously, looking at the dynamic of this, if we just have, if we have Herman, if we have Lily, if we have Grandpa, and then we have Eddie, it's a little bit too male-sided at that point. So I think the idea to add uh, Marilyn in as a daughter this time, I think that's actually really, really inspired, especially because we can get some very, very interesting storylines out of that. The fact that Marilyn seems to be the most normal one of the bunch as we can see right now she's not a vampire she's not a werewolf there doesn't seem to be anything supernatural going on with her as is the rest of her family but we do see over the course of this series some things that very much make us like kind of bat an eye that uh Marilyn might have some sociopathic or psychotic uh psychotic uh uh, uh some psychotic you know uh mindsets into her there i don't know i kind of feel that that might be that might have been where they're going with it as well marilyn could have been our portal to the rest of the monsters because it's very well she could have just been normal at that point and we're just kind of here to like see from her viewpoint the way that she views her family and she loves her family she absolutely loves her family but at the same time we could tell that her family resents her because she's the normal one she's not supernatural as we can see so far from the rest of them and i really enjoyed that dynamic of having her in there because we know that uh like 
again in the original show they don't play they didn't play up a lot of this the monster stuff up like we would play that up here today and that's very relevant because this is set in modern times and maryland ends up being probably one of the only ones who can pass for like normal at that point because again the others can't do that as well. I mean, Eddie can when it's not a full moon, but the others don't have the ability to do that as well. So Maryland is the most accessible to us. Now, it was great. Uh, my boy John Kassir, the Crypt Keeper, also played the neighbor of the Munsters in this, which is absolutely fantastic. Married to uh, Beth Grant in the show as well, too. That's a great great addition there to the series itself and it's fun to see the monsters settling in after this werewolf attack or bear attack as they've been calling it into mockingbird lane and seeing what the future holds in store for them the main plight of this pilot is whether or not they're going to tell eddie about what he truly is about what's causing these problems that eddie is currently having and I like that because, again, it is just supposed to be a pilot. You know, they set up all these other threads that we would explore a little bit later, but we still get so much out of it to where even the short runtime, it's only about uh, about 40 minutes long here, actually seemed a bit longer in a good way when I was watching it. I wanted more out of this series, especially because the cast is just so, so good. Um, I've already talked about Jerry O'Connell in the past and that he's easily this actor that's out there that you can just enjoy watching no matter what he's doing. I know right now him and his, uh, him and his wife, Rebecca Romaine, uh, Re Rebecca Romaine O'Connell, they're uh, hosting the, uh, the, the Love Boat reality show currently on CBS. And even then the clips I've seen of that, those two are absolutely fantastic. And again, there's that quality about him that really draws you in because he's such a great guy that you can see that in a lot of these roles that he plays and you see like it's a trait of herman in this show that he just loves too much it's a reason why herman needs a new heart because he really does love too much but it doesn't change the fact that herman is also willing to have somebody killed in order to stay alive that he doesn't want to lose what he has right now for his family and that's set up as a problem between him and him and lily because he doesn't want to lose this connection he has to the rest of his family but he's worried if he doesn't have a human heart in himself how is he going to feel that love for his family that he currently has uh with grandpa again we know grandpa's issue is that he wants everybody to be like him. He wants monsters. He's enslaving the neighbors as he serves some cookies to the neighbors with his blood inside of that. And uh, Grandpa clearly just likes to revel in being this monster as he even shows Eddie how the food chain works when they find a mountain lion and Grandpa goes and feeds on this mountain lion. I think that the way that they give each of these characters their own, uh, their own motivation in it is so much fun honestly it's a very very colorful show and it makes it all the more sad that we didn't actually get a full series out of it just because i think the casting for this has was absolutely perfect i really actually think that this was perfect casting for all of our monsters that we have here again i think Marilyn might have ended up being our most interesting character with this because there's some traits and tendencies that they seem to hint at with her that i'm sure we would have do a dive deeper to pick up and even if it turned out there's nothing wrong she's just truly normal no sociopath uh, sociopathic tendencies that would have been fine as well too but it's easy to want more um 
this is one to where man i wish that it was 2022 that this was being tried because i do feel if brian fuller had tried with this cast in 2022 now that horror is just a thing because let's face it even 10 years ago horror was not having the same resurgence that it is right now like horror is huge right now especially after uh, after going through lockdowns and stuff, horror just had this big, big, big resurgence in the media. And I feel that if it was 2022, uh, Mockingbird Lane would have a bigger shelf life than it did originally on NBC. So it sucks because this show was absolutely fantastic. And, you know, they said that they don't think they got the mix right. They absolutely got the mix right here for this. I mean, perfect casting, perfect setup. Um, the budget for it seemed really good for it as well, too. Sad we didn't get more out of it, but if you could check it out, uh, definitely go watch Mockingbird Lane. Alrighty, so keeping up with things, we are talking the second episode of the first season of AMC's Interview with the Vampire after the Phantoms of Your Former Self. So if you recall, at the end of the season premiere, what we saw was uh, uh, Lestat had finally turned Louis into a vampire, basically after everything Louis had gone through, including the recent death or suicide of his brother. Um, Lestat finally wins Louis over and turns him. And the episode starts off immediately with uh, Daniel uh, continuing, continuing the interview of Louis, because remember, they're in Dubai right now. And Louis is resharing his story to Daniel to get more accuracy, more details, more information about everything. And uh, there's some tension there at the beginning of this. Again, uh, we have the tension between Daniel and Louis, which I think is perfect because like I revealed with the review of the first episode, you know, things didn't go down the way that the original story told us to where Daniel is told this entire story of the, you know, the book basically. And then, you know, ties, tries to get uh, Louis to turn him, and then Lestat turns him, and then they become companions. No, instead, you know, he's telling him parts of the story, but he wasn't really accurate with a lot of it. And then Daniel still wanted to be turned. Louis attacked him, and that was it. We fast forward so many years later, and we can tell that Louis, even as a vampire, the whole idea is he's trying to show that you can be a vampire and find another way. And that's a lot about what this episode is talking about because we're looking in the early parts of Louis as a fledgling and Lestat trying to guide him about how the rules of being a vampire works. You know, you don't drink or eat dead blood because if you do that, they pull you down with them. You die, they die too, which was absolutely something that was talked about in the books. Or the fact that, unfortunately, Louis has to find out for himself, sunlight is terrible for you. Uh, sunlight will kill a vampire because as Louis looks to hold on to his mortal life, even though he's a vampire now, he's unfortunately shown that the sunlight, while it gives life to everything else, is extremely deadly for vampires. Now, from there, it's interesting watching Louis throughout this episode again pick up on all the nuances that come with being a vampire as well too the whole idea of being able to read thoughts into where in some cases that's a gift to have that's something that can absolutely be beneficial to being a vampire but the flip side of that though is that you're also going to hear things for a while that you probably don't want to hear which includes when louis is able to you know reunite with his family hearing a lot of these thoughts of his mother who already was disapproving of him as she blamed him for uh, his brother's death. And so hearing all these thoughts that his mother has doesn't bring him any kind of comfort, even though he has the ability to see her again. 
or the fact that when he goes to visit his sister, again, his vampiric instincts and ability allows him to figure out that she's pregnant with twins. But then the flip of that comes that when she leaves Louis alone with her newborn son, uh, he attacks the child or he, or excuse me, he, uh, he's very close to attacking the child and runs out, leaves the child there because he obviously doesn't want to hurt his family. And, you know, Lestat sets up over the course of this episode as well, too, that you have all this power, but you can't have these attachments because to be a vampire is death. You are a murderer, you are a killer, and you have to accept that vampires are not these soft souls, these soft creatures. They're not humans anymore. They can't live and abide by the ways that humans get by. They have to live their own way. And that again, Louis has to learn that the hard way that these kind of attachments aren't good for you. They don't set you up for anything but pain and heartache and sorrow. And Lestat's trying to find a way to bring that to Louis softly but at the same time getting his point across and it seems that everybody is missing the point there because we know the stat longs for him and i did find that interesting through the episode is that the first episode makes it very clear that it's not just about Lestat wanting to feed on louis that's not what it is because he could feed on anybody that he wants to he saw something in louis that he absolutely had to have he saw this love this this fire this passion that louis had and he knew that he wanted him as this lifetime companion and lestat opens up to louis and lets him know that you know these are the things that uh, that i love you for these are the things that i need you for because i need that like i've been on this earth for so long at this point and all of that has been stripped away from me we don't get that as vampires because as lestat tells louis there's maybe a hundred of vampires, at least at that time, out there. And that's very, very interesting to think about the fact that, you know, you would think in a story like this, like, oh, there are hundreds, there are dozens, you know, there are all these endless amounts of vampires. But Lestat is very positive that there's only about a hundred of them out there. And with that low of a number, the earth is pretty vast and wide. It's not easy to tra traverse around the world. So how can there be a connection how can you have that lifelong companion if all you can be greeted with is death and so while lestat is trying to instill those values into louis louis is trying to show lestat that you can still have these connections and unfortunately both of them succeed and both of them fail as well too we see an outburst from louis in this episode to where as he's doing business for a building that he wants to uh, that he wants to procure um that the person he's doing business with still at the end of it no matter what no matter the genius of louis and the smarts that he has and the deal that he's put together he's still just seen as being smart for a negro and that still cannot be overlooked in this series that it is such a great twist it's a great turn it's a great way to utilize this especially right now we're in a time where everybody is freaking out about characters being turned different races we have to remember these are not real characters and by turning louis into a black man that gives us this entire new perspective that makes it deeper and i think that allows us to get away from something like what the movies provided because you can go and just watch interview with the vampire you can watch queen of the damned if you want to see how this all plays out the original way it's supposed to but 
I think by turning Louis into a black man, it adds another layer of complexity on here. And I know we're going to keep exploring that. And it's interesting because Lestat even calls that out. That Lestat would never understand this because vampire or not, all this power and wealth or not, you're a white man. You don't have to deal with the same looks and the same indignation that people have for Louis that even a man of class can't be seen on the same level. And... I love how deep they dive into that with this episode because we're not going to be able to overlook that. Even here in 2022, where Louis is talking to Daniel, you know, we're still in a time to where you might not be looked at the same way. And there's some glances that Daniel gives to Louis at times. It's like, well, things still might not have changed that much. This is a powerful story. It's still absolutely bloody. Um, it's romantic, it's sensual as well, too. I'm loving what we're getting out of this, folks. You're going to want to keep watching. Interview with the Vampire is available on AMC. And if you have AMC+, Plus, you can check out Episode 3 right now. Hey, everybody. I appreciate you checking out this video, whether it was a review, whether it was a new episode, whether it was an unboxing, an interview, or whatever else. I want to remind you, you can check out my separate reviews also on my YouTube page. And new full episodes go up every Wednesday night on YouTube at 8.30 p.m. Mountain Standard Time and on your favorite podcasting platforms at 8 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button, like, and share. My name is T. We've been talking scary movies. Stay scared. Thank <laughs> you.